we acknowledge the original owners of the land on which we podcast, whose stories were told for thousands of years. Today, we are recording in Mianjin. We pay our respects to elders past and present who may be listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. A quick note before we get started that there may be some swearing in today's podcast. If you don't like swearing or usually listen with children in the car, you have been warned. You're listening to What in the NDIS Now, a podcast where I, Hannah Redford, and my friend Sam Rosenbaum interview participants and providers about all things NDIS. Hey, Sam, how are you going? Yeah, good, thanks, Hannah. How are you? I'm doing well. That's good. Who do we have on the podcast today? Today, we have our friend, Benjamin. Welcome. How are you going, Ben? Good, thank you. How are you both? Going well. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now, our first question is, where did you grow up? So, I was born in Hong Kong and I came to Australia when I was three years old and pretty much have been Brisbane born and raised since. Which, Good state to move to. Yeah, yeah. Which surprises some people because when I talk to a lot of people on the phone, they hear a quite an Aussie accent sometimes and then they see me in, in, in person and they go, hmm, <laughs> voice doesn't exactly match the face, but, you know, it's one of those things. Look, Queensland is a good spot to learn the Aussie slang and get that tone down because we uh, quite like to use it up here in good old Queensland. There's definitely a Queensland accent. I can attest to that. It's got a good twang to it. When I first moved up here, because I'm from Victoria, I was like, what are all these people saying? <laughs> I got introduced to the word chinwag the other day and uh, for the love of my life, I did not know what chinwag meant. So <laughs> I kept looking at people and people would be like, oh, we're having a chinwag. And I'm like, wagging, what chin? <laughs> Do I have another chin that I need to wag? And then I realised it's just a bit of a, a chat between friends and things. So, we, you know, one of those things. That's gold. That's gold, yeah. <laughs> awesome. So how did you get into the disability sector? So I studied physio and sports science at um, Bond University down at the Gold Coast. And I graduated 2019 in July. Went into private practice physio for about six months and then COVID broke loose and all hell broke loose. And then obviously private practice didn't become what it was. And then I moved into aged care and a bit of community work. And that's pretty much where I spent my life for the next three or four years. And anyone who's worked in aged care knows that aged care is an interesting space to work in. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of challenges and uh, you do get to see your fair share of craziness. But pretty much from that route, I went from aged care back into starting my own business and trying to navigate community physio and, and all kinds of physio for about two years. And then I had the opportunity to work with a lovely participant who pretty much set my path down into the community aspect and, and kind of leads into what I do today. And that participant is still with me and has we've done a lot and gone through a lot. Um, and that's pretty much built where I am now. And thankfully, throughout my, my time in the NDIS, I've done a lot of networking and met with a lot of great people, one of which is Sam, yep. many, well, many months ago, almost a year and a bit. Oh, ago. no, so it's a year, almost a year, years. Oh, years. 
Almost. <laughs> Almost. Um, but I've met great people. I've built great connections. And thankfully, I, I think I've got a community of NDIS professionals I can always turn back and ask to. Um, ask questions and be like, I don't know what's going on here. As we all know, NDIS is crazy. Yep. It's complex. So having people I can turn around and be like, hmm, I have no idea what just happened is fantastic. Yeah, having those are professional personal networks as well are, yes. are really good so then you can sort of yes. debrief and yes. decom just sort of get out what the sort of the stresses from that day or over yes. the last period and it's always good knowing that there are also other NDIS professionals that have no idea what the hell hell just went on all yep. the time <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's always good to know that I'm not in the boat alone I think a lot of uh, a lot of the listeners definitely feel that with you <laughs> I have that, that, that those moments almost daily <laughs> Yeah, and it's constantly changing, like what they expect, the rules they've got for us, you know, and that's part of, you know, even the name of our podcast, <laughs> you know, what what now are they changing? Good golly, stop changing it on us. So, yeah, I, I really feel that. So I think one of the difficult aspects of doing physiotherapy within the NDIS space is writing reports. Yes. <laughs> what do you think is the number one thing you want to see in a physiotherapy report? I've had this discussion with a lot of sport coordinators and the fact of what's actually important in an NDIS report and what's pertinent uh, especially when we're looking at things like change of circumstances or change of situations and providing enough evidence to justify a, a certain level of funding for participants. From I think it depends on, like, like all providers within the NDIS space, everyone has their own way of doing things. Everyone has their own little quirks and ways of doing things. I think the biggest thing for me when I'm writing a report is having outcome measures that are quite generically used throughout the space, um, mostly as a tool so that we can go, this is what normal kind of looks like and this is where we're sitting at. And for me, it's kind of going, the discussion I've had a lot is some of these things that we see in our participants are also things that we see in everyday people, but what does the disability do to make managing this particular challenge so much harder. And I think what I try to base my reports on is going, these specific issues are present within the participant and this participant is diagnosed with X, Y, and Z. Then if we're trying to put a report together, it's trying to go, look, we're trying to justify these particular uh, providers or um, frequency of physio or frequency of allied health because of the challenges they have day to day. Unfortunately, what I do see with some physio reports is it's kind of like, oh, here's the measurement, here's, the, uh, here's what we saw, and then that's it. And they don't really make a justification on, well, if you saw this, how does it affect their daily life? Or if, it's, if you saw this, how will it influence their progress over the next 6 to 12 months? And what can we do to try and improve it? I think also the challenge is, is that I haven't realized this, but a lot of support coordinators aren't exactly sure what physios do. And I get mm. a lot, I have a lot of conversations with support coordinators who are like, do you do this? And I'm like, uh, yes, it's, it's something we do pretty regularly. And I think the education around it is, is something we need to look at um, going forward. So if you had a suggestion for support coordinators to go out and learn more about physio or learn particular ways of engaging with physios, what would be the recommendation? 
This is a hard question, I think. It's not as, as easy as going, just talk to providers, just talk to physios. Unfortunately, I think a lot of allied health is hidden behind that kind of, as bad as it seems, but hidden behind a paywall, which is my participant doesn't have enough funding. I'm not going to get advice for him because it costs so much. Um, and that cost analysis is such a big, big thing within the NDIS space. And unfortunately, we've seen so many reports and news articles about fraud and everything else that goes along the lines of the NDIS that it's hard to go. How can I trust a provider to give me the information that I need that's best for my participant? And it's why we see a lot of support coordinators go, I've referred to these providers before. I'm not referring to anyone else because I only trust these six or seven people. I don't have a solution, unfortunately, outside of I hope some allied health professionals are more willing to give away things for free and more willing to give away information and advice and um, and and be willing to, to talk to support coordinators and be like, what's the gap in your knowledge? How can we fill that gap? Or what do you think we can help you with? And then try to build on that rather than going, we're not going to give you anything and we're not going to give you any advice until you give us a participant who's going to be paying for us. Yeah. So, so I see it to, to explain physio to someone else. I see it a bit like trying to explain what an OT does because a lot of the time you're a bit stuck on what the heck does an OT do, do because it's quite broad and it's mm. the same with physio. It's quite broad and it it depends. It depends on what disability the participant has. It depends on the specialisation of the physio and realistically, hopefully, each physio has picked a specialisation and so what we as support coordinators should be doing is going out and saying, do you have a specialisation in blah and and going mm. for picking the physios based on their specialisations rather than does, I don't know if a physio does X, Y and Z. Unfortunately, I think in the space we're in at the moment, there are a lot of physio companies that advertise we do everything. Yeah. And again, it's it's that whole issue where they're hidden behind a paywall. You don't know how good they are until you've dealt with them and you've mm. dealt with them as providers. But in saying that, I also like to play a devil, devil's advocate on this, which is a lot of physios who have a ton of experience aren't always good physios. It's like any industry, right? We always go... The older guy has lots of experience. He's got 20 years of experience. He must know best. I don't think that's always the case. And especially with the way that healthcare changes all the time, the new health updates, you know, AI coming through, um, adjustments for technology, participants being more well-informed about their rights and what they want to do and their goals. Um, it's not right to say, oh, this guy has 20 years of experience. He knows everything. You can just listen to him and he'll sort you out. And, you know, the multidisciplinary approach is also really important as well, getting a lot, all these other providers in to try and contribute to helping the betterment of, of our participants is, is the ultimate goal. But again, it's, it's a bit of a difficult space because we get so many providers who offer so many services and do so many things and they kind of put everything under one umbrella or one branch and they're like, we offer all these services, here you go. Yeah. I Completely agree. I think places that try to be all things to all people are nothing to no one because you 
can't possibly be across everything in all these spaces. And I think it's a fool's errand to try to be because then you're you're a jack of all trades and a master of none and you're, you're not very good at any one particular thing. So do you have a specialisation yourself? So my own background is I did a degree in sports exercise and sports science and then I did my physio. So my passion is really getting participants back into the gym, back into hydrotherapy, back doing active exercise and, and participation. I guess that also kind of leads into my goal and my my sort of dream with where I want to get my business into and, and where I want physio to kind of build into. So one of the big passions for me is I've had some participants that I want to go to a gym and do some exercise with them in the gym environment. But the gym's too crowded, it's too cold or it's too hot. There's way too many people around, people banging, pushing weights everywhere, um, people grunting. The space, like the public gym space, even private gyms, are usually not ideal for participants, especially those who might get overstimulated or those who don't like like loud noises or are really sensitive to temperature changes. My dream is is essentially try to build a a disability-friendly gym where we can kind of soundproof specific rooms, we can temperature control specific rooms if the participant likes it warmer or colder, Um, we can make it hotter or colder. If they like louder noises or if they like specifically white noise in the background, then we can also accommodate for that. Um, That would probably be my goal going into the future. I just need yeah, a few million. Really cool. I, I just like need that. a few million dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a smooth call, call a couple million. Why not? Yeah. Pull it out of yeah. your back pocket, mate. Mm. I I love that idea personally, because yeah, going into a sort of normal gym that everyone else goes to is really intimidating, and and like you said, there's a lot of noise, and, and I think that's something that. The normal gym can be really intimidating. So I really like that idea. The other thing of having a hydrotherapy pool there, instead of having to go to the public pool, I think would be amazing because having to go to the public pool can often feel like people are staring at you. So yeah, I just I just love this idea. Cool. <laughs> Planning around school holidays is also fun for hydrotherapy pools. Yes. So uh, it does get quite busy and crazy there. Yeah, because then there's very few and far between just solely dedicated hydrotherapy pools, isn't there? There's a lot of indoor heated hydrotherapy pools, but a lot of them are open to public. Yeah. So kids come, parents come, uh, everyone in between comes. So. You know, it's it's a good public space to be in and I love a lot of the hydrotherapy pools that are around. But again, if, if we're dealing or working with a participant that has specific needs, unfortunately, we can only cater to very few of them. So you're talking about your specialty being in or around the sports and getting back into movement. How have you found the NDIS line, whereas it's the health versus NDIS sort of argument where they won't whether they, they won't fund certain things if it's a health funded or if it, they will certain fund certain things because you can do it on the NDS plan how do you navigate because you just kind of fit in that line border between the two health world and disability supports world how do you find navigating that it is a fine line 
like a ultra thin wire. So we have this discussion because the public health system is unfortunately atrocious in the fact that the only publicly available healthcare or publicly available physiotherapy service um, is under Medicare. You can only get five visits a year and it's nothing. So there are a bunch of strict criteria you also have to fit under. So you have to go see your GP, get a chronic disease management plan. They have to approve it. And more often than not, you can't even put all five physio visits because of the rules around chronic disease management plans. So the specific rules are they have to be seen by three professionals or more, one being your GP, one being your physio or whatever other allied health professional you're seeing, and then another one being whatever other allied health professional is required. So under the public healthcare system, it's almost nothing. Um, so you can imagine the issue is, is that we want to try to avoid getting participants towards the stage where they have to solely rely on the public health system. But it's also kind of like they, it's a bit of an argument with the NDIS going, what is necessary supports and what is reasonable versus what is just us going for, you know, playing soccer with a kid which yeah. is something that they should be able to naturally integrate into the community anyway. I think the way I see it is, especially for children, the example I'll make is with a lot of children that we see, um, individuals or kids that have diagnoses of level two or level three autism, our goal isn't to get them physically strong enough because a lot of these kids are quite functionally mobile. They might have a slight d delays in their development or slight global developmental delays in terms of specific coordination skills or particular balancing skills. Um, but our goal is to get them comfortable with playing with us as the providers, as the physios, so that they'd get used to playing with other social workers or support workers, and then they get used to playing with kids and building those skills so that eventually we can get them away from playing with the, the physios with activities like soccer towards playing with other kids their age. Again, it's a, it's a bit of a fight. And I think some support coordinators don't see the benefit in that. And some support coordinators do. It just depends on, you know, what the family sees as beneficial and what the support coordinator sees as beneficial and then what the NDIS sees as beneficial. Yeah. It's kind of... That like, comes back to that original point at the start where it's some people don't understand the benefits of physio in the yes. first place or yes. what, what it actually is. And I think that also brings in the importance of having a really good support coordinator yep. um, who realizes, you know, those social interactions also require other interventions other than things like psychology or other than just getting the participant involved with other kids and might need therapeutic interventions or capacity building, not because they have a, a specific physical disability, but because those social issues also play into their physical delays. Yeah. One of the big examples we see is, is kids that don't want to participate in an activity. They might de demonstrate developmental delays purely because if they find an activity too difficult or too hard, they'll shy away from it. Like we see, I do a lot of assessments on kids who they don't want to catch the ball because previously when they went to catch and throw a ball, they got teased about throwing the ball, catching the ball, how they threw it. And now, in the head by a, uh, by a football game at the, when they were three months old at a Geelong <laughs> versus Melbourne game. <laughs> Wasn't me, I swear. <laughs> but then all of a sudden they're labelled as developmental delay. Whereas if you throw and catch a ball with them in two months' time, they suddenly can catch and throw that ball so much more because they've built that confidence. 
And I think that's the benefit of physio, and that's the benefit of, of exercise interventions and getting them active and getting them out and about. Of course, this is, is, is very specific to a certain population, but I think it is also something that we can kind of extrapolate to the wider community as well. And that's that whole conversation about physical disability isn't just physical. The mental mm. component to it is such a big thing. And I'm a huge advocate for things like mental health and how that plays into pain and, and physical presentation and physical signs and symptoms as well. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like um, the NDIS needs to sort of duplicate the multidisciplinary team practice because uh, I've seen how beneficial that can be in hospital settings with my mum and having the various teams, thoracics, cardio, uh, psychiatry, physio, OT, all in the one room and be able to work out that sort of uh, the current issues on the table um, as a team definitely has its benefits. And I think from what you're sort of saying, there could be a bit, bit more to go within our space to sort of adopt some of that case conference sort of ideas and theories that they sort of have. I think we need to, I'm speaking from personal experience, but I, I believe we do need to get away from the competitive mind space within the NDIS um, where providers are kind of competing against one another of who's got the best services and who does everything and who's got immediate availability to try and take on you know 10 or 15 new participants versus who's actually the right fit. Like I think yeah. Hannah said earlier, right? The right fit is more important than anything else. It should be the only thing that's that's considered when we're looking at matching a provider with the participant. Yeah, there's there's a huge there's a huge lot of research to be said about the therapeutic relationship, and that therapeutic relationship will do more for you if you like your whatever kind of allied health professional than you know what they're actually doing with you. As because you have to like them to be able to take on their advice. So I just wanted to quickly talk about kids with autism. One of those things you were saying before, because I know from my kids, one of the issues we've had is really low muscle tone that I know some can be common in kids with autism. And that's one of the reasons we've gotten them to see physios previously. So how do you go about sort of, say it's something like that, how do you go about sort of building some of that muscle that sort of really isn't there to begin with? So my approach is generally find something they'll enjoy and stick with it. And if they want to switch sports, switch activities, do a bunch of different things, that's also perfectly okay. But essentially, it's it's what do they enjoy? And sometimes I have this conversation with the parents. It's you might have to try a hundred different activities. They might like some obscure sport um, that no one's ever heard of, and that might be the only thing that really, really gets them going and moving. But it really is a bit of a trial and error procedure. Some kids love soccer. Some kids absolutely hate it. Some kids don't want to be out in the sun. You can pick some indoor sports as well. There's indoor water sports as well, water polo. Uh, if we're thinking about indoor sports, you can think about things like gymnastics as well. The thing to think about is you really do need to find coaches or sports trainers within the specific sport you're looking at that understand that not all kids develop at the same rate. Unfortunately, you will get to some 
some particular sporting industries that are very much they categorize everyone according to their age groups and that's pretty much how they place everyone in so if your child is a little bit developmentally delayed or, or a little bit slower on specific skills and activities they may get teased by other kids and, and the instructor goes you know you're not what an eight-year-old girl should be at yeah and i think finding more coaches who are sensitive to that is probably key and I think there are a lot more co- um, coaches that are now a lot more sensitive to things like that. And there are a lot more, you know, sports trainers and people out there who are aware of all of these different things. But unfortunately, you do still get some old school coaches who kind of label everyone per their ages and everything else. That reminds me of Auskick. You know, they've, they've got, they're in age groups yeah. in Auskick. And yeah, I, I remember... Um, one of my kids doing Oz Kick, and that yeah, that's the only spot you can really occupy. All mm, right, back in school, I went to a GPS school up in Queensland, and we had great. So we would have our year levels, and then but we'd also have great teen grades. So we'd have A's, which are like your, your top going into your year after play mainstream supports after school, and then you've got sort of your lower ends, which are more my style and kicking a football off the side of the field because I'm hopeless at kicking a football. Um, that's if I'm lucky I tried out in the first place, let's face it. But, yeah, so they've got the um, the gradings there, which is really good. I do know some local uh, football and rugby teams do that sort of approach as well. Soccer, I know, have, have some gradings in their ages. Uh, volleyball is another one swimming and water polo, a lot of different sports will have those grades. Um, but I think there's probably a fair bit that the sporting sector could do a bit more to be that extra step inclusive and supportive. Do you think that there's some people, I mean, not just kids, but even adults who go, oh, I was put into, you know, grade four of the cricket teams or whatever because they have so many people, say, for example. Yeah. Does that make you feel like shit? <laughs> you know, because you're like, oh, really? That's yeah. There, there was a lot of like a bit like in get... that top sort of A, B, or C. There was lots of who's in the B's, who's in the A's, and yeah, that sort of thing. So there is that always that competitive edge, I guess. But I think that's kind of the, the general mentality. Um, so that's probably one of those things that needs to change in the first place. But um, not too sure how we'll go change systemic competition. <laughs> No, and I, I, I also feel like this is the wrong podcast to break the like <laughs> to solve that issue in the first place. Yeah, two two hosts that know nothing about sport <laughs> and talk about psychology or public policy. Well, actually, I know a bit about public policy, but yes, yeah, so I'm sure there's other other podcast hosts out there. There's an idea someone in the other world go solve sporting grades and society competitional problems. <laughs> So, so Benjamin, what are your, what are your favorite sports? Because one of the things I look for when, when say I'm looking for providers, if, if a participant says to me, oh, you know, I'm mad keen about say the Broncos or something, then I try and go out and find, you know, physios and OTs like the Broncos. So is there particular teams that, that you follow? I am basketball crazy more than anything. 
So unfortunately, not local basketball crazy. Not Brisbane uh, bullets. Not, not Brisbane like... bullets. Not the NBL. But I go, watch go for little... knowing the local sports team name because I don't. But I watch a lot of NBA, a lot of American basketball. Um, that's my main number one sport. Otherwise, I follow a lot of martial arts as well. Ah. Um, I did a lot of martial arts when I was a kid and was really into that scene for a long time. But those are probably my main two joys, sporting, sporting area joys. So here's an interesting question about martial arts. And we can feel free to edit this out later. Um, <laughs> do you think... Our producer's face right now. There are any martial arts that... So I think some parents' reluctance with martial arts is that it would make kids want to kick someone else's ass more frequently because they know how to. But my understanding is that if you put them into an appropriate martial arts school, they're taught not to use their skills except when they're in the class. What's your thoughts around that? So I've two main thoughts. The first one is you've always got a plan until you get punched in the face. So I will turn around and say uh, 99% of the things that you learn in martial arts school, you will never, ever use. And if you're ever in, engaged in any sort of real fight, are likely going to be very useless. Uh, and some martial artists out there might come up and try and beat me up after this. <laughs> <laughs> the second part of it is I really enjoy martial arts from the discipline point of view. It's, it's depending on the place you go to and depending on the area you, you kind of engage in with martial arts, it is a tremendous way of building discipline. And it's actually really good. It's a really good sport for building postural control. So a lot of, a lot of martial arts. So I used to traditionally do a lot of wushu, which is a Chinese martial art. But things like Wing Chun, karate, taekwondo, a lot of these sports focus on good posture, maintaining a stance, staying upright, keeping a firm lower base, so keeping your, your stance really wide and strong. And these skills are really, really good at building things like lower limb strength and posture um, and basically getting them to improve their muscle tone like we were talking about before, but also just to build their postural muscles and get them really nice and strong. Um, and I've, I've worked with a lot of kids who've done martial arts and they've gone done tremendously and seen a lot of benefit coming out the other end as well. Awesome. That is such great. So someone needs to do a disability martial arts course is what I'm hearing. Right. Yes. There you go. There's another one. That can be your first session off the bat for the gym. So, Ben, in your ideal world, what would – I've stuffed up the question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, ben, in your ideal world, what would the future of the NDIS look like? I think I've touched on a lot of the points today. I, I guess the main things for me is I, I hope and I wish allied health providers will work strategically and collaboratively a lot more going into the future. And I, I do wish that some allied health providers will screen their clients and really try and pick the right fit as opposed to immediate availabilities. Mm. Uh, because this is a discussion we have with quite a lot of participants and providers as well, which, you know, as, as we see, unfortunately, we do see a lot of turnover, especially within physio in the community space and NDIS space. 
And that could be a matter of the company is not great and the physio wanting to leave, the physio being overwhelmed and asked to do too many KPIs and see too many participants, a whole vast range of reasons. But the unfortunate part of it is that with any staff turnover, especially allied health, that means the participant now has to adjust to somebody new. And as soon as we see any adjustments or changes to providers for participants, that adjustment period isn't as simple as a, a, a change in providers from next one provider to the next. It's an adjustment period because of all the rapport we've built and the relationships you've built and a specific treatment style or technique that the provider uses that the participant loves and won't be able to get from the next provider. And if we can try and limit those provider turnovers within the companies, either by reducing the amount of KPIs that all the companies expect from their physios and from their allied health professionals, or, or just maintaining a bit more of a healthy, positive space for our providers, I think we will see better outcomes for our participants. Because many of us do see horror stories in the NDIS. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, thank you so much for being part of our podcast. That's all right. Thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, great you're here. And until next time, huzzah. Thank you for listening. Please share with people you know. Until next time, as the Green Brothers say, don't forget to be awesome.